all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Good morning. This is Southern Remedy with Dr. Jimmy today. um, Standing in for Dr. Rick, who is out today. We're going to be talking about all kinds of different things because I know that you've got stuff on your mind that you want to call in, and the doctor is in today. We're going to answer those questions that you have about anything and everything that is affecting you or your family. A couple of things in the news today. I hope everybody is, uh, number one, enjoying this early summer weather, maybe getting all the kids ready to uh to uh get out of school i know it's a challenge at the steward household uh it seems like the closer you get to the last day of school the harder it is to get them out of bed but um uh, and on their way i'm just glad that i've got one driving right now so uh lots of things going on in everybody's lives uh pollen counts are through the roof if you're in the jackson area actually if you're in the south you know that it is horrendous. Uh, I am uh, recovering from uh, some sinus problems right now and some allergy problems. Uh, key to that is you got to stay on it. You got to stick with it. There are complicated, uh, you know, not really complicated, but sometimes they may seem that way. There are different regimens out there that work really well um, that involve nasal washing. It really depends on your symptoms and what goes on and uh, and and what you're allergic to. Uh, allergists can certainly help you out with that, though. But that's going on out there. And then the, in the news, there's a couple of different things. You know, screening tests are incredibly useful, no matter what your age, all the way from, uh, you know, if you're a pediatric patient, uh, all the way to a geriatric patient. There are a ton of screening tests out there. And most people don't realize some of them are good and some of them are not so good. Um, but and then you got to sort of have some hurdles about what your insurance company is going to pay for. So there's a lot of different misconceptions out there. Just because a doctor uh, recommends that doesn't necessarily mean that is it is the best test. Now the best screening test, as we all know, would be one that. of the time, if it's positive, that's what you got. It would be great to have that, particularly for cancers, things that would harm us. That would be an excellent test. In reality, uh, that is just not the case. And it's very few screening tests out there, if any, have 100% of the time, if they're positive, that's what you have. Um, but there's a lot of different ones out there. So we can talk about that a little bit today. And maybe you got questions about that or other things. You can reach us this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, Or send an email to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. So screening test. Prostate screening test. That's a big one that uh, males often ask me about. It wasn't so long ago with my adult patients that they would ask me starting at age 40, and actually most of the insurance companies paid for it about 15 or 20 years ago, uh, that uh, you know everybody between the ages of 40 and up got a PSA. So that's a prostate-specific uh, antigen. So this is a blood test that you would do. Uh, along with an exam, so a little finger wave there, not to describe it any more than that. That's a manual exam to uh, to examine the prostate contour to see if there's some abnormalities there. Um, so what you know, anytime you can have a new test that that um, that tests for something, you have to let it sort of play out and see if uh, see if it's gonna you know if, if people are gonna uh, if it really is going to be beneficial they certainly test this as pilot studies to begin with with small numbers of people but a lot of times uh, particularly if you if you have a test it's not going to you know detect things a hundred percent of the time you're going to need to do it uh, in, in, uh, over and over again to see what those results are so a PSA was out for a long time. And if a PSA is positive, if it's high enough, 
the normal progression of a PSA level is that the older you get, the higher it is. It is a part or something in the prostate that it gives off into the bloodstream that you can measure. And generally speaking, the older you are as a male, the higher it's going to get. So there's sort of a range depending on your age. If it's really, really high, it's more likely to be cancer, but not always. If you have just an enlarged prostate but no cancer, it can be high as well. So as a screening test for all men, um, that's sort of how it was how it was put forth, how it was sort of marketed. Uh, what we learned is it wasn't that useful because you had a lot of false positives. So there were a lot of things that would influence that PSA where you had elevations in it. Uh, and if you had an elevation, the recommendation was you go see your urologist and you have a prostate biopsy done. Um, that may sound like a benign thing, but there are some complications with that. Certainly you can have some bleeding, some pain, discomfort, and it may even lead to having a, um, you know, your prostate removed, which has uh, a lot of side effects with urine incontinence uh, for a significant amount of people that have that done. Well, now we have some new data with, with prostate screening, and we've gone back and forth about this all the way from, you know, it's not a good test. We probably shouldn't be doing it in people who are, don't have any symptoms whatsoever and no family history, low-risk patients, all the way back to, no, we need it. It's important. Sort of in the middle is where we are right now. So this latest from the uh, from the um, um, U.S. Preventative uh, Services Task Force found that if you have men between the ages of 55 and 69 years of age and you tested a thousand of of them over 13 years, that you would prevent about 1.3 deaths from prostate cancer. So not a whole lot. So the biggest bang for your buck if you're identifying this and screening all men between the ages of 55 and 69,000 of them over 13 years, you're only going to save a little over one death. Now, if you're that one person, that's important. I get that. But we're talking about screening tests in the population here. And if you look at the, uh, the spread of prostate cancer outside the prostate itself, so cancers can metastasize or go other places, um, for those 1,000 that were screened, uh, you may prevent or catch three cases of metastatic cancer that spread. So not the biggest bang for your buck. What they've said now is, as a physician, your, your doctor should discuss this with you if you're a male between the ages of 59 and 69 years of age. Again, no symptoms, no family history of prostate cancer at an early age, um, particularly if you're white. Uh, we know African-Americans have a higher risk for this. Then you should probably have a discussion with your physician about whether that's right for you. And and that includes the risk if it's positive, because if it's positive, they're going to they're going to say, hey, you need a biopsy uh, of this. And then you're going to see a urologist. So there may be some complications with that. But that's what's out there on PSA screening. This is Southern Remedy, and we're taking calls today. we got all the phone lines open. You can reach us with any problem that you might um, be seeking an answer to about the health of you or your family by calling 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email us at southernremedy at mpbonline.org. A couple of other things on uh, cancer risk, uh, you know, keeping to the same subject, um, at least in what's in the news. Uh, colon polyps, you know, we have uh, screening for um, colon cancer. Probably the best way to do that is with a colonoscopy. That's that dreaded thing once you get to about age 50 to 55 that you should have at least every 10 years, depending on what they find. So basically they have this lighted scope that they look up into your intestine as far as they can uh, they can, they, well, not as far as they can see. That would be sort of horrendous, you know, to describe it that way. But uh, long way up into the intestine. And what they're looking for are polyps. Polyps are these growths on the interior of your intestinal wall that can lead to cancer. Uh, and uh, if they see those polyps there, most of the time they will do some polyp plucking. So they will uh, cauterize or ban that polyp and take that polyp and send it off to be tested uh, to see if that's a, a cancerous lesion. Well, there's some new evidence uh, just out uh, about colon cancer screening using the colonoscopy. And these polyps, they're also called adenomas. So if you've had this done, you know, you get a report back, usually with pictures. I'm not sure why we, you know, as a patient, you'd want to see those pictures. But uh, you may have, uh, a, you know, polyps. 
we've made recommendations. Uh, gastroenterologists make recommendations on how soon to follow up with those in the future uh, based on the number of polyps. What we know now, it's also the type of polyps that you have or adenomas. So they can be labeled as advanced or non-advanced. And not too surprising, this was 16,000 patients who under, underwent this test. Uh, the advanced ones, as far as long-term risk for colon cancer, about two and a half times higher than the ones that did not have the advanced polyps. So those are some things out there that you can, you know, that you can keep in mind. And we'll probably change a little bit about how often that we uh, do the repeat screenings for that. Because anybody who's had a colonoscopy, it's not the actual test itself because they give you some nice medication that keeps you, you know, sedated and you don't remember the procedure. Uh, it's really the clean out. And that's gotten a whole lot better. There's different ways of doing it than there were even 10 years ago. Uh, but if you can have that every 10 years and still have, you know, the same uh, uh, risk reduction of screening, that would be that would be the best. This is Southern Remedy Today. I'm Dr. Jimmy uh, standing in for Dr. Rick. The number to call if you have any questions is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to Anna in Starkville. Good morning, Anna. Thank you for calling. Yeah, thanks. Uh, my question is about uh, early detection of Alzheimer's uh-huh. and Parkinson's. Is there anything on the horizon? So, yeah, so they're, they're, that, that's a, you know, on the horizon is the big buzzword there. So the the screening for both of these terrible diseases, if you know anybody or have anybody in your family with these, you know that they're incredibly frustrating because it deals with the mind. Parkinson's is not, is a systemic disease. It's not just the tremor that you would normally associate it with that. It does affect as it uh, advances multiple things that you're able to do. Uh, so as far as screening for both of these, we're still sort of in the early uh, Stone Age of looking for symptoms. Uh, so it, they are looking for different tests, particularly for Alzheimer's, that you could detect this very early on. They have been looking for it for years, though. I can remember all the way back when I was in college, there were some early tests looking for this. Uh, you can't really pick it up on an MRI or a PET scan very easily. It doesn't fit with the symptoms. And Alzheimer's, you really have to exclude other things. Alzheimer's is a type of dementia, uh, and that's that's sort of a broad category of diseases where you lose your ability to think. It may affect motor function. It may affect sensory function. But usually it's the thinking part that most people think of, of uh, not being able to remember things, uh, not being able to function as it progresses. There are different types of dementia. Alzheimer's is just one type. And really, it's it's defined by the pathology. When people, unfortunately, die of Alzheimer's, they notice that in their brains there's these neurofibrillary tangles, is what they call them. And there's they're not supposed to be there. They interfere with the way the, the neurons or nerves transmit information back and forth. So there are some some uh, there is some research in different areas and looking for ways that we can pick up on that. As far as Parkinson's, you can see changes within the brain itself, not on a CT scan uh, necessarily, but on an MRI and PET scan. But it's still largely a diagnosis. Uh, based on the physical exam findings and different symptoms that people have. So, uh, Anna, that, that's still, it, you know, if you suspect that, tell your physician. That's the, the most important thing. And to keep a diary or a log of the symptoms that that patient is having, uh, if there's a spouse that can do that too, that is very helpful. I know a lot of, particularly us men, as we get older, you know, we don't want our, our spouses or family members in the office sometimes, and they're sort of resent, sometimes patients sort of resent that. Hey, that's beneficial that they can provide other information about what's going on. So stick with that, Anna. Uh, hopefully in the future we'll have some things like blood tests and other scans that we can, uh, we can uh, identify that earlier on. Okay. Uh, I was thinking also about, like, if you have a family member, is there any genetic Test yes. Yeah. yeah, there are. And, you know, there's no genetic test that you can do, but that family history is important. So you do want to tell, make sure you tell the physician, hey, we've got a strong history of Alzheimer's in the family or Parkinson's, because that's going to help them make that diagnosis. They're going to be looking for those warning signs when they have those routine health visits. Is that uh, gender uh, specific, like more in man or... 
women, so, or it doesn't matter. Right. There are some differences between men and women for both Alzheimer's and, uh, and Parkinson's. Not really a whole lot to make a difference, um, you know, in, in what you're looking for. If it, You know, if I'm somebody's physician and they have a family history of either Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, particularly Alzheimer's, I'm going to be looking for that and asking those questions regardless if they're male or female. Thank you. Thanks for calling. This is Southern Remedy. The number to call if you have questions is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to Judy, who has an exercise question. Uh, yes, I'm almost 73, and um, every day I ride my stationary bicycle for 30 minutes, and I'm getting my heart rate up like 127, 130, that kind of thing. Now... The question is, is, am I doing a good thing or a bad thing? Judy, do you mind me asking you if you have any other medical problems? Well, fortunately, no, I really don't. I mean, I take blood pressure medicine, uh, but other than that, I don't take any medication. Yeah, Judy, I, I would think that would be perfectly fine. Now, if you look at most exercise guidelines, uh, they will tell you that you need moderate, uh, act, at least moderate level of activity. And you can you can calculate that out by heart rate. I heard you, you know, uh, saying that your heart rate got up in like the 120s, 130s. That's pretty good for uh, for your age, uh, you know, and level of exercise. Another thing, if you, you know, if you're not familiar with checking your own heart rate or have a heart rate monitor, which there's more and more of these devices on your arms and everywhere, uh, exercise equipment, uh, is to, you know, if you can talk but not sing, that's sort of the the general cutoff for moderate level activity. For instance, if you're walking and you can comfortably talk, but you you're not going to be able to sing. Some of you may not be able to sing at all, but if you could, you know that's that's a little bit different level. So you want to get it up to that level and stick with it. And for the prevention uh, of of general things like diabetes, the treatment of hypertension with lifestyle changes, generally speaking, we'd be looking for thirty. Minutes to an hour a day would be a goal. Uh, a lot of people would want to start off there. If you're not, you know, if you're a couch potato right now, you don't want to just jump on that all at once. You'll be frustrated and you'll quit. But um, 30 minutes to an hour a day, uh, most days of the week. I would probably take off a day or two here or there. And don't forget, it's the other exercises too that matter. So as you get older, even if you're doing the same thing, a lot of my patients, my older patients, they'll they'll be doing this. They'll be walking. Some of them even jog. Uh, they ride a stationary bike, but they don't do other things. And you, if even if you're that active, you're not using other muscles, particularly the muscles that help stabilize you when you walk, when you walk upstairs. If you get knocked, uh, you know, knocked in the in the side in the grocery store. And it, it wouldn't be a bad idea if that's the only thing you're doing to maybe do some light weights. I would consult with a, a somebody at a gym like an exercise physiologist or a physical therapist, and they can design a program just for you. You don't have to stick with it at the gym. You can do that at home. They can show you some different things. Uh, a general rule of thumb, ask your physician if this is okay for you. But, Judy, I think you're doing great. I mean, that sounds like a lot of things that you're doing right now. Might want to add some light weights if you're not doing that. Uh, that can help uh, maintain the uh, bone density that you have, too. So it's also good, you know, if you're as long as you're taking in uh, calcium and vitamin D for osteoporosis pre- prevention as well. Well, thank you so very much. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for calling, Judy. Let's go to Sue in Beaumont. Dr. Jimmy, I want to ask you a question. Uh, hello? Yes, ma'am. You oh, are on the air. Phone. Go ahead. I my phone. That's okay. Uh, I have a friend who's done aid work with, with health organizations all over the world, and she says one problem that, that you never hear about, but they have a big problem with um, children with parasitic infestations of their intestinal parasites. Right. And... Uh, it, round worms, pin worms, hook worms, and I think she said tape worms. But anyway, I remember when we were kids, my mother would have to go every every spring and get us some worm medicine. It's some kind of little green liquid you put on sugar, and we'd have to swallow that and follow it up with a dose of castor oil. Yep. Because we went barefoot all the time, and you get ground itch, which is that, I understand that's how they, the parasites enter your soles, your feet. And we'd have to take that, and 
you don't hear about kids getting worms or worm treatments anymore. So I just wondered, do you ever see any of that in your practice? Sure. It's rare. We do have a lot of pinworms and pinworms are probably what you were being treated for rather than the tapeworms or uh, ascaris or roundworms or the other ones. Uh, I do, you know, I've, I've done some work in, uh, um, in um, the Central America area, Guatemala, Honduras, uh, Mexico, and uh, it's very common there. Usually this is a problem with water supply more than it is with, uh, you know, just walking around barefoot. So, uh, you know, that's, you know, some people say, hey, it's okay if your kids walk around barefoot, that's fine. I'm okay with that. You're not going to pick up a lot of intestinal diseases or, or that kind of thing. Kids eat, you know, I'm, I'm an internal medicine doctor, but I'm also a pediatrician. I have to tell people this all the time. Kids eat dirt and they they get dirty and they get they go play outside and that's great and they're going to put their hands in the mouth. Very little uh you know in the United States very little risk of them getting something like this. There are some instances of this at the border, but generally speaking this is a problem of water supply uh and in different parts of the world there are different parasites. So the parasites we see here uh roundworms, tapeworms are not very common. Uh, Ascaris is even less common, um, but you can get a big load of these, and we don't typically recommend that you, you know, as you said, deworm uh, somebody for this or as a prevention either. And actually, in in countries with you know that we go into, uh, that's not something that we do. If they're symptomatic, we treat them, but they're just going to get re, re uh, exposed to it. So. Uh, not a whole lot of stuff besides pinworms. You know, pinworms, it's not so much the itchiness on the feet can also be fungus. So particularly here in the south with the high humidity uh, and, you know, we're sweating all the time. It's just a setup for fungal infections. If you have other medical conditions like diabetes, sometimes it can put you at risk for that, too. But that's extremely common uh, in uh, in the south. So hope that answers your question, Sue. And, uh, uh, yeah, worms are out there, but uh, not not. Not quite to that extent. There's some other exposures that you could get to, you know, uh, amoebas or another thing that aren't a true parasitical infection. I guess you could you could call it that. But that's that's another thing. This is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy uh, standing in for Dr. Rick, who is out today. And uh, we're taking all your calls today. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to Tim in Bogalusa. Hey, Doc, a uh, son just recently uh, diagnosed with hypoglycemia, and his GP said, we're just going on a diet, and uh, I think he did a three-hour glucose, and uh, they and I had the same scenario about 30 years ago, and it just seemed like the general practitioners, when they do that, they just kind of don't give you enough information, didn't give him a diet, and uh, I had to, had to educate myself way back then it seemed like is there any other doctor specializes in that I, I sure almost believe he's got diabetes but yeah so it was high tim i think you said did you say hypoglycemia that would mean low blood sugar or was it hyper i, I did okay. it was hypo in other words but it, even during the glucose in between the hour i think he slept in other words that yeah if yeah, if it gets that. if it gets too low, uh, that is a symptom of it. You'll be lethargic. Usually, you get sort of tremulous. You'll have a little bit of a tremor. You might uh, get sort of sweaty. Uh, I actually get this. So I, you know, if I don't eat consistently and I eat junk, uh, you know, I've in the past if I eat some things, particularly if I had a cup of coffee and then you know somebody brought donuts to the office and I have a donut or two. What happens is you can get an insulin overshoot, so your body produces the insulin to help metabolize that blood sugar that you eat, uh, and you get this spike in blood sugar from foods that go up really fast, uh, make that blood sugar go up really fast, and then it just plummets after that. So uh, there's a lot of different reasons, particularly, how, how old was your son, Tim? He's 39, and like I said, I had the same thing, and I had to educate myself, yeah. and I, I could feel it just like you, but... And he had double vision. He had, he's he's way out there. He's got yep. some major stuff going on, and his diet's terrible. <laughs> so, yeah, the diet is, is the number one thing. Now, you usually don't get low blood sugar with diabetes, so it's just the opposite. It's high blood sugar. But I, I would say if he's got those symptoms and he's got a documented low blood sugar, they've done the test, they've done the fast, and it did drop down, there's some other things that can go wrong. Uh, there's very rare tumors. There's one in particular called an insulinoma 
that can uh, you know affect the blood sugar. So that's something that they they may need to to check for. I at this point, and because you have this family history, there are some uh, familial types of this that go along with other. Uh, syndrome. So I, the the experts in this is somebody called an endocrinologist. Endocrinologist. Okay. I would I would ask for a referral to them or call them. They are not that common in Mississippi, but they're they're there. So if you can you know get in touch with them, they'll do some lab work and some further testing to try to you know exclude some of those things. If everything's excluded and all the labs are okay, with the exception of glucose going down then you may need to, you know, adjust that diet. Foods that have a low glycemic index, in other words, they have a lot more fiber in them. It takes a lot longer for them to release their sugars so that it's nice and steady throughout the day. Those are the things that you need to eat. Those are the things I have to eat or should eat um, to help prevent that. So that would be, I would get in touch with an endocrinologist. Thanks. All right. Sure. Thanks for calling. Let's go to Don in Long Beach. Good morning, Don. Good morning. Um, I was just curious. Uh, my wife and I recently uh, had DNA analysis done for genealogical purposes, and we took the raw. I took the raw data files and I fed them through a website called Promethease, uh, Promethease.com, and got back reports about health-related, potentially health-related possibilities from our DNA files, and neither of us had any real red flags in this, but I was curious about um, whether or not you thought in the future uh, this was going to be a routine part of uh, everyone's medical profile, uh, having their DNA analyzed for potential inherited diseases or problems like that. Uh, that's an excellent question. Certainly, in a lot of uh, a lot of people are talking about genomics. You may hear that term too. So, uh, you know, genes control who we are. About eighty percent of who we are, and then the environment is the other part of that. So, you certainly could be at risk for things. It is fascinating, though, that the people. If you look at you know the early research on this with was with uh, identical twins because they have the same DNA, and you look at them over time. There's certainly more diseases that they are more prone to get. For instance, if one identical twin gets diabetes, the other one will probably get it. However, there's a variation, too. So because of the you know identical twins that are separated at birth and have different environments that they grow up in, what they eat, uh, different stress levels, they can sometimes, that DNA can be modulated. Now, Don, I'm sure you were scared to death when you got that report back when you fed it in with all these. Not really. Uh, uh, Not, were, I come from a long-life family. There you go. Okay, good. So so that's that's a positive. A lot of people will, though. So you have to be careful with those tests uh, because just because you have an inclination to get it because of your genetics doesn't mean that you're going to get it. Um, there are some genetic tests that we do routinely. Most people don't realize uh, all, every state has genetic testing uh, at birth for certain disorders, disorders that we can treat that we know we're going to have a big effect on that on that individual. Uh, some uh, uh, common ones that they test for, uh, cystic fibrosis. There are several inborn errors of metabolism. So these are the different systems that the body uses to metabolize different things. And they're treatable either with modification of diets. We have new treatments out now. So those are being screened. I think we'll see more of this. Even beyond that, though, there's a lot of interest in pharmacogenomics. In other words, which medications work better in different people because of their genetics. And that's a that's a huge area of research because we have all these wonderful medications out there, but as most people realize, the same medication that worked really well in one person, even in the same family, may not work in the other one as that well. Was one of my most significant findings was that some antidepressant drugs didn't work well with me. Right, and right. So if I ever need to take an antidepressant drug, it might be significant. Yeah, I think, and that's the kind of information that your physician down the road might find useful. Because those, and that genetics, that's not going to change. I mean, you got that for life. Uh, however, how your environment sort of shapes that does. But yeah, the, the, the pharmacogenetics, so how, they, how your genetics affect how you're going to react to different medications, that's one of the biggest areas of research right now. 
And I'd hang on to that and just give it to your physician. It's worth a try. You know, a lot of times, particularly like you mentioned with depression medications, it's sort of trial and error to see what people are, how they're going to respond to it. So good information. It's not widespread uh, to the point where everybody should just go out there and get it. In fact, if, you know, there's a lot of ethics, ethical questions in this. If you know that you have a disease that may not come up until you're 40, but it's it can be passed down to your children, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease uh, or ALS is is one of those uh, classic ones. Uh, you know, do you want to know? Uh, it certainly would change how you live your life, start a family. So, I mean, there's a lot of ethical questions as we move into this era of of genomics, uh, medical genomics, and and how it can affect us. But certainly, it's out there. Thanks for that, Don. Uh, great question. Let's go to Kathy in Meridian, who has a diabetic question. Good morning, Kathy. Oh, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, Yesterday, my husband has diabetes too, and yesterday he went to see a rheumatologist because he's been having some difficulty in that area. And the doctor, I guess he ran a a GFR, Uh and the results said that he only has uh, 44% kidney function, and uh, that frightened him, frightened me, and I'm just wondering... um, any input on that from you, please? Kathy, how old did you say your husband was? Oh, he's 75. 75, okay. Because that, that's important. So a GFR, that stands for glomerular... I can't even say it this morning. I know, that's a I hard I have to word slow down when I say it. Glomerular <laughs> filtration rate. So yeah. what it measures is the amount of blood flow that goes through the kidneys and then gets filtered. Yeah. Uh, it's a calculated... Um, it's not directly measured, but what they do in some of the, the blood work, they look at certain things that the kidney filters out, and then they calculate what that filtration rate is. So it's it's a measure of kidney function. It's not the only one. It is an important okay. one. And uh-huh. it changes from time to time. For instance... If you, uh, you know, if you're out at a, watching a, your grandkids at a baseball game and it's yeah. hot and in the Mississippi summer and you're not drinking a whole lot, <laughs> your GFR is going to go down uh, okay. because you're not, you know, if you're a little bit dehydrated, it's going to go down. There's a lot of other medical conditions, but it's it's constantly changing. It doesn't stay the same. So that one number may change depending on what were the conditions. Like if you fasted 12 hours before that for other tests that you would okay. need to fast for, that could change uh-huh. the results. That's so, interesting. And it that does go. The doctor had him go and do another, uh, give some blood right then, too. Yeah. So we haven't gotten those results. Now, it's not unusual. You said 44. It's not a percentage. It's it's oh. uh, it's a number that, that, that calculates. Usually greater than 60 is normal. So if you look on those results, it's probably going to say greater than 60. Okay. Um, we lose, uh, you know, over the age of about 50 or so, you lose about 1% of your kidney function per year. Okay. And there's a lot of variability. We have, you know, each kidney has about 1.2 of these little bitty filtrate, 1.2 million of these little bitty filtration units. We call them a nephron. And yeah. uh, so you got about, if you have two kidneys, you got 2.4. Uh, but we lose about 1% of that per year. So you do see a little drop in that GFR over time. So okay. if he's in his 70s, you know, early to mid-70s, that wouldn't be surprising that his GFR may be in the 40s. Okay. I, th- I think you have to look at other things. The biggest factor in this is he has diabetes. Right. And I think it was a real wake-up call for him right. to, to really get on the program of eating correctly. Oh, absolutely. Well. Well, what you want to do is you want to minimize any risk of further damage to those kidneys. Yeah. Um, so, you know, making sure your blood pressure, particularly if you have diabetes, your blood pressure is controlled uh, yes. to goal, that you're getting really good glycemic control, your A1C you know, at least needs to be less than seven usually. There may be some other reasons why your doctor wants it to be either lower or maybe a little bit higher. Uh, but uh-huh. generally speaking, less than seven, probably, you know, if it were me, I'd even get a little bit lower than that. You want to make yeah. sure that, that uh, you know, cholesterol and risk from cholesterol is being addressed. So there's a lot of different things that go into looking at that. But that being said, if you're doing all those things and everything else looks okay, that GFR may stay in the 40s for okay. 20 years. 
So it's, oh, that's interesting. But, okay, I think I panicked. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it gets to thirty. Yeah, there's nothing you can do or something. No, 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 and you know, and the scary is, well, they're going to progress to dialysis, and that is a it, risk that factor. Was my scare, thank you. Right, that was exactly what I thought. Yeah, but it's you're he's way away from dialysis right now. I think the biggest thing is that he needs to you know focus on those risk factors, make sure the diabetes is being controlled, make sure his blood pressure is being controlled, lipids. If he smokes, yes. definitely need to quit doing that because that's no, a big risk factor. No, that. And would you, is it too premature to say he should see a nephrologist or just kind of let him be with his rheumatologist? Uh, I would, you know, I would consider going to see a nephrologist just because that's an extra set of eyes that are going to be that's focused right. on that kidney. And sure. if you know anybody who's had to go on dialysis or even, you know, get a yeah. kidney transplant, uh, it's yeah. not it's it's something you want to avoid and prevent. And if you can do Absolutely. that with, a, you know, with a nephrologist, they're the experts in that area. We're seeing a lot more of that push toward if you have even early disease, okay. since they're the experts, they're going to be the ones that can that can watch it and make sure that you're not uh, doing anything to, to further damage them. That's, and just maybe as a PS, our. Our one daughter who lives in Germany has a kidney disease where her kidneys do not process protein. Yeah. And at this point, medication is keeping her good. Yeah. They said if she hadn't gone to the nephrologist when she did, she would be on dialysis today. Yeah. yeah. Pro- protein in the in the urine is not a good thing. So that's something else that they'll uh, that they'll look at. So th- thanks for that question. This is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy standing in for Dr. Rick today, who is out. The number to call if you have questions about your health or somebody else in your family or just a general medical question. Doesn't have to be about you. That's just been on your brain. Maybe you saw it in the news. The number to call is one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven. Six seven two seven four six four, and also, you know, I, I should mention uh, kids and teens. Uh, you know, you may have heard uh, me on Thursdays uh, on uh, Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. We try to focus on that, but also today, you know, if you've got some kids and teens questions, we'll be glad to answer those too. So you can call in with those. Um, let's go to Beverly in Tylertown. Good morning, Beverly. Good morning. Thanks for calling. I have a question. My husband is 82, and he has a chronically low sodium level and a chronically low H&H. Okay. Is there a connection or? It could be. Yeah, it could could be. So the low sodium level is common. Uh, It's called hyponatremia. So hyponatremia, so low sodium level. Sodium is one of the electrolytes in the body. It's an important one. Uh, it has a lot of different functions in how the body uh, processes things. Uh, the symptoms of that, most people feel once it, you know, I don't know exactly where he sits as far as the level, but generally speaking, if it gets below about 120 to 125, you start to get some significant symptoms. Uh, most people feel tired. They could be sleepy. Uh, if it gets down lower than that, they'll have some trouble with uh, staying awake. They'll be unconscious. Uh, there may be some uh, some nausea related with that, too. Um, but there's a lot of problems with that if it gets down low from the way that, that nerves work. And uh, that it can be caused by a lot of different things. There's sort of an algorithm as, a, as an internal medicine doctor. We love these little algorithms and different ways that we look through things. Uh, and you need yeah. to you need to know some labs, but you need to know you know how he looks. So, uh, have they? Do you know, Beverly, if they've they've identified a direct cause for that low sodium level yet? Uh, no, they haven't. Um, it runs one thirty normal. I mean, that's okay. normal. Yeah, and it it has gotten lower than that. Yeah, 130, and that's not too bad. In fact, I have a lot of patients that have this, and some of them will have it, and you don't really know the cause. Medications are probably the biggest uh, the, the biggest cause of it. There's a lot of blood pressure oh, okay. uh, medications, particularly uh, diuretics are a known cause of this, and that's something you want to watch out for as you get older uh, with medications that are perfectly safe to use for hypertension, but as you get older, the body's just a little bit more sensitive to that. you got to look at that and maybe even change something that you've been on for 20 years. Um, that's one of the causes. There's a ton of other causes of hyponatremia, though. Thyroid problems, uh, if he has, you know, if, if a patient has heart failure, if they have 
uh, cirrhosis. Okay, so he's got a lot of things going. Yeah, so you know, one thirty, I would try to treat all those other things. Your your physician may say, yeah, that's probably what's causing it's multifactorial. You mentioned a low um, uh, hemoglobin or hematocrit uh-huh. is another another value there. That's anemia, and you can be anemic from a lot of things too. Not really a direct correlation per se, but some of those other problems that he have may be contributing to the anemia. Um, you know, there's there's three different reasons why your hemoglobin would be low. You're not making enough, you're losing it somewhere or destroying it, uh, or you have a condition that's interfering with those processes. So there may be, you know, you can have a low hemoglobin if you have diabetes or heart failure, and that's called anemia of chronic disease. The main thing you want to rule out is, are you losing it? Do you have something in the intestines or in the stomach where there's a, a lesion there that there it's bleeding from? Uh, but with multiple chronic medical problems, it's not uncommon to see a little bit lower hemoglobin. Okay. I mean, he had uh, a knee, and they had to give him two units. Yeah. And it just brought it up to nine Yeah. after the two units. But Yeah, and, and in a surgery like... an iron and... Folic acid, anything else he could do for that? Uh, it really depends on the cause. So if they've, if they've, you know, they may have said that he may, you know, they may throw out iron deficiency anemia. In that case, iron mm-hmm. is beneficial. If he has anemia of chronic disease alone, which means some of these other medical problems are contributing to it, you don't really need a whole lot of iron, just enough to maintain, you know, what you're producing. Folic acid, if you're folate deficient, and as you get older, you don't metabolize that as much, that's a simple thing that you can take daily, uh, you know, as a replacement. Uh, B12 can also do the same thing, and it can cause anemia. But they'll they'll tell you, if you ask them what type, that's the the question to ask is, what type of anemia uh, does he have? And I understand. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Did, did I understand you to say B12 causes it? It doesn't cause, well, a, a low B12. I may have stated that wrong. So oh, okay. B12 deficiency, right. okay. yeah. Not getting enough okay. folate or B12, they cause a different type of anemia. Usually you have big, you don't have a whole lot of red blood cells with that, but you have big ones. Uh, they get bigger okay. when they don't have uh, the folate or the B12. But just ask your physician, hey, what type of anemia does he have? Uh, and okay. then that'll sort of lead him to what to what he needs. Okay. Well, he's genetically predisposed. I think his mother was, and his brothers are. Yeah, and I it, don't know. Yeah, and it can you know sometimes you see those anemias in families, but I would bet it's the other medical problems that are causing this, and maybe even medications. And it, look, once you get over age seventy. Have your physician relook at the uh, at the medications you're on. Uh, ask them about beers, not drinking a beer, but beers criteria, and uh, that's that's some guidelines about medication use in the elderly because we use a whole lot of medications in the elderly and we cause a whole lot of problems. So sometimes those have to be changed. So. Thank you, Beverly. It's a complex thing to try to wade through that. Uh, engage your physician in it. Do a lot of research like Beverly's uh, obviously already done, and uh, hopefully you can get the right answers. Got a couple of emails that I want to address. Uh, uh, our unknown email person here says, Hello, my nine-year-old is exhibiting some issues with food. I've noticed her eating at all times of the day, sometimes waking up to eat. She also has been hiding snacks in her room. She spends a lot of time in her room playing with her Barbies or watching movies. She's overweight for a girl her age, but I try to avoid bringing it up so that I don't cause other food issues. She is a very sensitive girl, and her dad and I divorced five years ago. I'm not sure uh, if this is related. Do you think I should take her to a family therapist, or is this a phase? Any help that you could offer would be great. Um, hey, thanks for sending this in. This is a hard thing. So a 9-year-old, uh, I would say 90-plus percent of the time, it probably is something that's going on that a family therapist could manage. You want to exclude the medical. Uh, there are some medical conditions that could be causing this as well. Uh, usually if a child's waking up and eating, um, I, that's the only red flag in here that I might want them checked out and just get some routine lab work to make sure that nothing else is going on. Even though, you know, you think about there's different types of diabetes. Type 1 is the one you usually get when you're young, thinner people. Uh, they they don't make insulin is the problem, and they usually lose weight. However, uh, you know, I have seen some kids present with this, and they were overweight. And they one of the symptoms is they eat a lot all the time. They're always hungry. 
Um, so that's something to at least consider. Uh, but there may be need to be some questions asked about what's going on. Certainly, um, different situations in the family that come up. You mentioned divorce. Um, that's that is a sensitive issue, and that's something that you know it's not. Uh, it's probably a good idea just to go ahead and and get some counseling around that. I mean, it can't hurt. Um, food issues in kids. Um, it is very difficult. A nine-year-old's a little bit young. As they get a little bit older, you may even look for somebody who's they're they're rare, but they're out there. There's there's a few in different areas of the state and in the South. Uh, a an adolescent physician, adolescent medicine physician. They specialize in the care of adolescents, and they really start around age ten or eleven. So you're going to be there, uh, you know, in a year or so. But that may be somebody that they can see, and they can they can tease out those other things. Uh, there's a lot of good other ways that family therapists that are trained in this can uh, can help out too. Uh, just make sure as a family therapist that they're comfortable with kids because it is a little bit different. Um, it takes time, um, support for her and letting her know that she is safe, that everything's fine, that things aren't her fault uh, that happen. Um, you know, those kinds of things can be helpful with providing a safe structure where she doesn't go to food. But food disorders are common. Uh, they're, they're, most people think of it in adolescent, but pre-adolescents can get those too. So I, I really think going to your physician first and the family, uh, the family therapist might be a good idea in that situation. That's tough when, uh, you know, kids, they don't get to choose those kinds of things. And sometimes they place the blame on themselves. It doesn't seem logical a lot of times for things that happen, but they think it's their fault. And uh, even older kids, one of my one of my son's friends uh, was going through something recently and uh, thought that that it was uh, his fault that is uh, that his family's going through this and certainly not the case. So a family therapist can help you out. Uh, always get help if you need it. That's the biggest thing I tell pa- uh, parents and particularly with kids or adults for that matter. Got another email here with a question about hospice. Are there circumstances uh, that prevent people from receiving hospice care? For example, lack of payment from insurance, certain medical diagnoses, etc. This is from Lauren from Brandon. Hey, thanks for uh, asking that question, Lauren. So hospice is a, an excellent resource uh, for families. Uh, my wife worked for a hospice agency for several years as a nurse, and I got to learn a lot firsthand about how that works. I've had several uh, family members that have uh, that have been in hospice care uh, over the years. There's different types of hospice care. So there's inpatient and then there's home hospice. And most people have, well, there's a lot of misconceptions out there about hospice care. Um, it, it is not giving up on a patient. Uh, it is not uh, that we're uh, abandoning all care of the patient. Uh, it is probably the best thing at the end of life with a terminal illness that is probably not going to get better. Um, it is the best thing to do for a patient because it preserves their own wishes. It has a high importance priority on uh, on palliative care. Palliative care really has to do with uh, uh, looking at all the things that affect a patient so that you have goals of making them comfortable, as comfortable as possible. You're uh, asking them about their goals uh, for the end of life. And uh, the, back to the, it, you know, that's just sort of what that is. Uh, pain medications sometimes are a part of that, but not, they're not the whole part. There is a lot of support staff that hospice can offer to patients and their families. Hospice care does not end after a patient dies. They are there for their family and can have some resources for counseling and other things that families need. And it is tough, uh, you know, particularly with, you know, we're, Patients or families, uh, individual patients are living longer and longer with chronic illnesses. And because of that, there's a lot more burden on families to take care of them. And, you know, most people think I can take care of my spouse. I can take care of my mom. I owe that to them. When you get down to the last stages of life, it's impossible to do that. And if you think about it, if they were being taken care of in a nursing home or with skilled care, it would take more than one person, certainly probably about three or four regular people to do that well. Uh, so that is that's something to keep in mind. Hospice care can certainly do that. The hurdles to that, insurance is a hurdle. Now, most insurances do cover that. Um, 
Uh, certainly uh, Medicare, Medicaid uh, can cover those services. You do want to check that out. Uh, most of the ways that people go into hospice care is through the hospital, but your physician can probably uh, tell you if if they would qualify. Uh, there's outpatient ways to get people into hospice as well. Certainly you can do it from, from both routes. Um, medical diagnoses, there are qualifications for that. So, in, for instance, if you don't have uh, certainly a life-threatening illness or an illness that is likely not to get better, the classic ones that people think about is maybe end-stage uh, cancer, uh, the last stages of heart failure where nothing can be done, or the patient may say, you know, this is not worth it. Um, I'd like to just um, to be comfortable and be with my family, and I have other goals that I'd like to pursue in the last stages of my life. That's the patient that really qualifies for hospice. But uh, if you're thinking about that, ask your physician to get you in touch with a hospice agency, and they have a person that can come out and talk to you in your home uh, or make an appointment of, of to talk to you, you know, if your uh, loved one's in the hospital or you're in the hospital. And they can explain the whole process about what happens and about what you need to do. But it's a great resource uh, to to look into. And as I said before, you can uh, there's a lot of services, home hospice agencies, where they would come to your home and you can be comfortable in your own setting that you're familiar with. Or in some situations, you may choose an inpatient facility. And um, that, there's a lot of different options there. But ask about that. If uh, your physician or your care team's uh, you know, if they, they aren't able to do that, uh, ask them about that as, a, um, as an option. Got another email here. I was diagnosed with lichen sclerosis about 9 to 10 years ago. I'm 61. I don't get much feedback from any gynecologist I see. The only thing that I've ever used is Terrasil cream. Uh, it really helped with itching and irritation when I first used it. I hardly ever use anything anymore. Uh, my diet seems to dictate how it is. Usually I don't have much pain or anything. Uh, just wondering if you could give me some information and a prognosis on this. I understand there's no cure. Uh, uh, sincerely, Jolene. So, Jolene, thanks for uh, for calling about that. Lichen sclerosis can be an irritation. Uh, uh, it's a chronic illness, as Jolene said. Uh, it uh, certainly can, uh, can affect the skin. Um, and it is affected by other things. It's sort of an uh, immune mechanism uh, that uh, that most people think that's the way it works. So uh, here's what that what I would suggest. Uh, if you're using this cream and it's not really working or you have a change and your GYN, it sounds like, is... Um, is um, is the are the main ones? I think you need to go see a dermatologist for this. They, they're the experts in the skin. They can. There may be some other things that you could try for that uh, that may work better. Um, but even if they don't, you know, continue seeing it that for for it, it might be worthwhile to have a trip or two to the dermatologist to try to um, tease out if there's some other things that you could do. Well, that's all the time we have for this hour. I want to thank all our callers for calling and. Uh, Uh, Certainly great uh, questions that we had from all of you. Uh, Southern Remedy has been a production of MPB uh, Think Radio and uh, a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous donations from our listeners. That's you. Uh, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart filling in for Dr. Rick, who is out this morning. Stay tuned for MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting.